Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code EQUITY. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make Equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Natasha Mascarenas and joining me is the wonderful Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny Crichton, how are you? If I still have the epithet of wonderful by Thursday, that means it's a good week. Yes, I love the energy. We're going to have a lot of fun today. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. The key thing is, is that our normal supervisor, Alex Wilhelm, is out of the program because he's on vacation, which is obnoxious and terrible. Uh, he only wrote, what, 80 stories? I think he wrote 79 stories last month. I wrote seven. I think he wrote 12 <laughs> times more stories than I did. So somewhat well-deserved. But that means we own the show this week, which is amazing. Yeah, it's going to look very Danny and Natasha. So we're going to talk about a box around the creator economy, which means Patreon, Clubhouse, and Masterclass. Have some time for EdTech trends. Two funds, one that might get closed and one that definitely got closed, and then ended off with two funding rounds. But before that... Since Alex the Dictator is no longer in this program and he can't control the script, we figured, <laughs> what could we talk about that we normally would get censored on the show? And I, I figured we could, could do a quick top list of things we normally can't say because Alex is here. So first of all, I hate puppies. Alex would normally like <laughs> yell at me or whatever. I can't. Puppies are annoying. Who gets a puppy? Not me. Could not handle it. So yeah, we're anti-puppy this week. My addition is that Dunkin' Donuts donuts are not good. <laughs> They're just not good. And he always has one. But I will also say, I mean, this is as small and, and like annoying as I am in real life. <laughs> Alex always complains that I never know how to copy and paste things correctly into the script and he yells at me about it every week. He's like, you need to use command shift alt five six D V or whatever the, the combo is in Google Docs. Well, Alex, you're not here, so we have curly cues and italics and pink font F you. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Jenny. I had no idea that this formatting dynamic was happening. We will give one Valentine to Alex since we were sort of trashing it for a couple of minutes on the show. But one Valentine to Alex, because it's the kind of story that Alex would bring to the table, is Box, a longtime cloud service provider. After many months of tribulations, I mean, there's a lot of questions about Box's future in a world in which Microsoft and Google Clouds have really come to a fore, and, and Starboard Value has been all over them, the hedge fund. We learned this week that KKR is going to invest $500 million into the company as what our, our reporter Ron Miller called a lifeline. And along with that, Aaron Levy, who is the founder and CEO and chairman of Box, is going to step down from the chairman role while still remaining as CEO. So big news going on in the Box world. It'll be very interesting to see how the company adapts to the new multi-cloud storage world going forward. Our Ron Miller noted that the Box stock was down over 8% pre-market. So maybe a signal that Wall Street isn't super happy with the announcement. Obviously, Aaron Levy is one of the most forward-facing people in that company. But I mean, we'll see what happens next. They did acquire a company last year, so they probably will be doing a lot more inorganic and organic growth. Box is one to watch. Now, what's crazy here? Box today on the markets post the valuation is valued at $3.5 billion. Now, why that's interesting is because the next company we're going to talk about, actually, we're going to talk about several media companies, all of whom are valued at $4 billion. So Patreon, and we're going to get to Clubhouse in a second here. But think about this for a second. Patreon is a $4 billion company, which is more than Box, which is IPO and publicly traded. So, you know, ups and downs in the venture world, unbelievably crazy. But let's start with Patreon. So longtime readers know Patreon is, is a creator economy stalwart. It's been in the market for 
many years as a payment and sort of gateway for building up a, a creator business. The company raised $155 million this week from Tiger Global, which is from what I hear, writing a check every six hours at this point, 24-7, 365, bringing its valuation to $4 billion, up from $1.2 billion just in September last year. So huge change going on at Patreon. The company takes a 5 to 12% fee on creators plus a payment processing fee, averaging out, according to some notes on Twitter, to about 18, 19% of a take rate on the platform. It's wild. And this one kind of felt like it was coming. So when I saw the embargo in my inbox, I was like, oh, like barely batting an eye. I am starting to wonder if all the creator economy companies are trying to time out their announcements with each other to create a trend like Substack last week raised money, Cameo raised money. And so now I'm like, okay, Patreon's the next one. Who else can we guess and scoop and be right about? It's amazing when you think, I mean, Patreon has been around, I believe it's a 2014 or 2013 company. So in the creator economy world, that is a really, really long time. You know, outside of maybe YouTube, you could argue is the original creator economy kind of company. It has been a little bit of a slow pace. You know, we last checked in with the company. We did a, an EC1 on Extra Crunch. It was actually our debut EC1. It was actually our premier cover story for Extra Crunch on launch day. Use code equity. There you go. You, <laughs> you Use code equity for, I think, whatever percentage off we're giving these days. <laughs> but the company has just continued to progress. And I think part of the magic here is that Jack Conte, who's the CEO of Patreon, is also a creator himself. He actually still runs two bands, Pomplamoose and, and another one. That's always been part of the story. And he's still actually actively building those brands, creating music, going out there and performing. To me, it's like it's an authentic story of if you build good tools for creators, there is a market there. Creators are using it more and it's been successful. They're 100% an OG. And now I'm curious, Danny, if when you first heard of Patreon back in the day, were you bullish on them? Did you ever look at them when you were on the venture capital side? For sure. I was always bullish. So my former uh, employed venture fund, CRV, is the Series A investor. So Oops. that was in a fund that I was not a part of. That was Fund 15. Okay. I was covered 16. So it happened before I was there. But I even saw them earlier on post-GC. And I always thought that they were thinking about this market the correct way. I mean, you have to, you know, rewind the clock back eight years and realize yeah. that people didn't think that subscriptions were meaningful. People didn't think that fandoms would pay. You know, you had to have ad-driven, you know, if you go to like a fandom.com, I believe it is, or some of these other sites, they're all ad-driven because people thought... Well, just because you're interested in Lost doesn't mean you'll pay 10 bucks a month for a Lost, you know, membership or whatever the case may be to this fandom. And I, I think Patreon, more than any other single company, proved that in that long tail, you know, the thousand true fans model in, in Chris Anderson's language, yeah. they're really, people will pay. There is an economic business model there, and you can be the infrastructure provider in the middle to take the, a little bit of a cut on all those to make a, a business that operates. That is a great segue to the next company we're going to talk about, which is Clubhouse, which we did last week. And I thought we'd get one week of a break. But Clubhouse this week introduced its first attempt and swing at monetization. I'll be clear, the monetization is not for itself at this point. It's for its creators. But it is taking this Patreon-like idea of people will pay for their favorite hosts on Clubhouse, whether it's a consistent payment, we don't know, but they basically launched a tip jar mechanism to allow some of your favorite creators to accept money from any user on the app. They had about 8 million downloads as of recent numbers. And I think people got excited for two reasons. One, the idea that anyone can start sending money for 0% cut from Clubhouse. So Clubhouse will make no money through these tips made a lot of creators happy. And people on Clubhouse who like it a lot are not casual about liking it a lot. So any news from Clubhouse at this point will get a lot of excitement. 
What do you think about it, Danny? I think there's a couple of angles. One is obviously creating the culture from the beginning to pay the talent on Clubhouse in this way is really important, right? How yeah. how a product gets built in, in, in people's minds and how they pay is really important. Tipping for live streaming is actually really common in Asia, China, uh, Taiwan, uh, Korea, and elsewhere. And so it's interesting to see in some ways this getting backported into this world. I know you can do this on YouTube. I believe YouTube actually pulled it back from Asia as well. The second piece is you know, how popular is Clubhouse going to be? I mean, what's interesting to me is I logged into Clubhouse the other day what? when I heard this news. And <laughs> when I logged in, the most popular room was about Clubhouse and, and what Clubhouse <laughs> is doing. That was the most popular place. And so, you know, the meta conversation can only last so long on these platforms where it's like you're on Clubhouse listening about Clubhouse. And to me, the question is, is can Clubhouse attract the top talent and a lot of the folks around the table in order to make this work? What's interesting is breaking news Thursday morning as we're going to print, because that's what podcasts do. They print <laughs> TikTok's head of what was it, Creator Relations, who brought a lot of the top brands and, and folks and influencers onto the TikTok platform, just announced today that they're moving over to Clubhouse. So I do think that they are very well aware of the fact they need the best talent on the program. They need to raise the bar. The quality needs to be better. Let's see if they can execute. I think they have plenty of time and certainly have the money in the bank to do it. Definitely. That kind of alludes to something we heard this week. I think the news was broken by Bloomberg that Clubhouse is in talks to raise funding that would value it at $4 billion. And that was crazy because I think just a month ago, it was valued at $1 billion per the information. We then found out that part of that $4 billion number might be coming from the fact that Twitter is looking at it, also a Bloomberg scoop, which to me was just this kind of like really full circle moment of Twitter's building a Clubhouse competitor, but also might acquire Clubhouse. And so we're starting to see even the competitors, probably the best poised competitor to take on Clubhouse, also look at it as an acquisition target which would be crazy and make us all freak out. But that was one of the most interesting rumors I heard of the week. I agree. And I think, you know, obviously Twitter has launched Twitter Spaces to try to compete directly. Dan Premack, I think, had this tweet where he was like, if you're running Twitter Spaces, this would be like the most depressing news yeah. because Clubhouse is going to take over. And I actually thought it was complete opposite. I mean, uh, this is actually the complete opposite politics. If I was at a big company and I found out that my company was willing to spend $4 billion to buy the product that is directly competitive to me, I'd be like, my company's really serious about what I'm building. Like, this is something that's actually really amazing. I would love to know if our parent, parent, parent companies, which is like 18 layers up the stack is Verizon. If I found out that Verizon was going to put $4 billion to buy out a tech publication, I'd be like, this is amazing. Like, I'll take $4 billion okay, of resources. that's true. That's a really optimistic way to look at it. I love that. I think $4 billion for Verizon is like 3% of what they spend on Spectrum auctions <laughs> at the FCC this year. But nonetheless, I think it's clear that audio is here to stay. We've talked a lot about how it's getting integrated in a bunch of apps. I got to be honest with you. I mean, what's interesting here is Patreon to me is a much more sustainable play. It has a lot of customers. It has a platform. It has a growth model. It's valued at $4 billion. Clubhouse quadrupled its valuation in like three months. And to me, like it's still in that ephemeral state where it's still experimental. We're still trying to figure out what its longevity is. It's very, very, very early. I'm not saying I wouldn't make that bet. But if I had a bet long term, which one would be more likely to sustain? I definitely think Patreon's in a much better place than Clubhouse. Sure. And if you want to listen a little bit to our entire riff about Clubhouse competition, that is in our show last week. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of meta, though, that we can't stop talking about Clubhouse on our podcast. Well, but I, I'll tell you, but this, this is the conversation of the Valley. I'm, I'm on a panel tonight with a bunch of VCs asking questions about the media. And like, I think eight of the 10 prep questions were about Clubhouse. And I was like, okay, but like, I don't work at Clubhouse. Like, why how are you asking me? How do they convince you to be on it if you have to they talk about Clubhouse? They all show up and they're like, they want to know how Clubhouse, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, I, I mean, I can talk about Clubhouse. I'm on it. I have an invite. So, you know, it's still top of mind for a lot of folks. I think what's interesting is it's still the open-ended social bet. That just is always going to attract a lot of attention. But let's move on to an edtech deal because, you know, there are companies that are doing super well. 
Masterclass raised a big new round. Tell us some about that. Masterclass, you've definitely seen the ads. But if you haven't, if you're one of the 1% of people who have not, they sell subscriptions to celebrity taught classes. So thanks, Serena Williams. Thank Gordon Ramsay. And they are reportedly raising new funding at a $2.5 billion valuation compared to last year where they raised $100 million at an $800 million valuation. And so we're seeing this edtech slash entertainment company raise a huge new tranche of capital super fast. I think Masterclass has always been one of the most brilliant plays in edtech. I mean, it's not the only play you can do in edtech, but to me, the combination of celebrities, high production values, a subscription model, lots of classes. I've said before, I think on the podcast, I was like, no one literally learns, you know, comedy from some of these folks. But nonetheless, like it's fun and it's interesting and it's well produced. And for 10 or 15 bucks a month or whatever the subscription is, it nicely nestles in this like aspirational educational purchase in which you're probably not going to actually learn any of the skills that Masterclass is literally offering. Nonetheless, you will spend the money because it's fun. And for 10 or 15 bucks, why not? I think that's why it annoys me, though, because I see so many ed tech companies out there. And to me, this feels like an entertainment company with like a cute spritz of education, which is literally like a PDF handbook you download to answer questions along with the courses. Do I still use Masterclass? Yes. But I just feel like it's so lightly ed tech and is benefiting from the ed tech boom that like I'm a little salty here. But I'm not the one writing the checks. And look, there are other companies in the space, right? So Coursera recently went to IPO, filed their S1 a little while back, right now worth $7.2 billion on the public markets after, you know, almost 12 years uh, of development. So, you know, Coursera has always been built around the academic world, right? Yeah. It's built around professors, very similar to being like university online. And, you know, if you think about it, this company is much younger and is valued almost a third, almost getting close to a half of the price of Coursera. So you know, that's the thing with entertainment and education. Real education is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I do think there are just different pathways in life, right? If you just want to have an hour of comedy lessons on, on a weekend, like that's like your community theater kind of setup. If you're more serious, it's probably not the right place for you. Yes. I think the most exciting part about Masterclass is what it signals about how education can look in the future. Like I think Coursera's of the world used to have to look like this diploma-esque product, something that was super legit and just made you feel like you were in class. But the masterclass of the world make you feel like you can watch Netflix and also pick up insights on the way. And if education does end up trending more towards that, which it most definitely is, that is like actual innovation and makes me more excited. Absolutely. But talking about Coursera, and obviously masterclass, I think, is going to get to this point at some point, exits have become more and more crucial in the tech space. And one of the things that's been nuts over the last couple of weeks, so we've seen a bunch of exits this year so far, 24 by one count. Natasha, what are you seeing there going on? So you mentioned kind of 24 exits have happened so far in 2021. Compare that to 35 exits that happened in total in 2020. So if the trend continues, 2021 will 100% beat 2020 in terms of consolidation for the sector. But something that we knew and isn't a super crazy guess is that when a sector gets a huge boost of capital, the money has to be spent somehow. EdTech was the sector in 2020 that got the boost with huge new funds and a bunch of new unicorns. And to me, it feels super exciting, even though it's predictable that we're seeing the same companies that either IPO'd or became unicorns start to acquire smaller startups. So I guess I'll point through two. One is Kahoot, which is becoming kind of a mass consolidator in EdTech. It listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange recently and has bought three businesses in the past six months, which one was like a language learning service, one's an online whiteboard tool, and one is all about employee education. Three startups, six months. When I talked to the CEO, he basically said it's not going to stop anytime soon. They're going to keep scooping up talent inorganically 
for their growth and especially are doubling down on enterprise learning as a future for Kahoot, which has up until this point been a lot of user-generated in-school gamified lessons. I think it's almost inevitable, particularly, I mean, it's not just an edtech theme, right? I think we're going to see this in a lot of different sectors. You know, SaaS is, is sort of the connection between a lot of these companies. I, I think what's key here is to show, you know, again, 10 years ago, no one thought edtech was a market. Now we're seeing companies exit in some cases for small dollars, in some cases for much bigger dollars. But there are now massive companies. There's real revenues here. Coursera has gone out for the markets now, seven and a half billion valuation. We're seeing Masterclass at two and a half. There are real companies. And that means that there's a real market here. I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation and more acquisitions going forward. One last data point I'll have too is that Reach Capital, which is one of the first edtech focused funds in the US and one of the few female-led, female-majority edtech funds and venture capital funds out there, has had about 1 billion in exits in 2021 so far. And so I think a couple of those have been Nearpod. There was a Baiju's deal that just happened as well. And so we're seeing those early people who have bet on it, getting that liquidation, that money's going to go back into it somehow, which is great news and is not going anywhere anytime soon. But I will move us along to a New Jersey section because I never thought I would say this. We're going to talk about New Jersey on equity. Danny, how do you feel about that? Well, I was going to say the next story, which is a TechCrunch exclusive, is a great mission in a bad place. <laughs> and so it's, it's a mixed bag, but we included it because it's a great idea. Natasha, you're our resident, I apologize, uh, New Jerseyan. And uh, I'm curious what the story is and what's going on. Don't apologize. I have amazing bagels in my life, unlike you. So I think I'm doing just fine. But New Jersey... We export bagels to your uh, your, your <laughs> Thorpe past the Hudson River? It's like bagel jokes will never get old between both of us. And Providence <laughs> isn't even in the mix because of Dunkin' Donuts donuts are apparently their creme de la creme. Providence is like Northeast on that railroad that no one takes because no one wants to go that way. <laughs> In actual great news, though, New Jersey announced a proposal to create a $10 million seed fund aimed at Black and Latinx founders. The legislature is set to vote on the proposal by July 1st, so it's not done yet. But it is, per them, they are the first state in the nation to develop a kind of fund that's focused on this from the state budget. And it's legitimately an allocation in the state budget, which did leave me a little confused, Danny, on if it was venture capital or just a grant program. But still obviously exciting to see. And we, we all know the metrics on how Black and Latinx founders disproportionately receive less funding than white founders. Well, I think it's interesting because th there have traditionally been grant programs. I mean, I was covering and I have been covering the disaster response space. And like, for instance, in California, there's grant funding around wildfire startups. Uh, what's interesting is I think states are getting more and more focused on their venture financing. So in the past, they would be like a venture fund. And now, like, for instance, in New York City, a year or two ago, we had a cybersecurity fund that was sort of outsourced to a European Israeli New York centric fund that manages that. Now we're seeing in New Jersey, they're going to do the same thing, 10 million focused on Black and Latinx founders. So I, to me, it's just interesting to see that states are trying to subsidize, bring more money to the table, you know, basically create more action at the top of the pipeline, which I think is great. I love that in the interview that we had, they cited Thomas Edison and that New Jersey used to be a thing before Silicon Valley rolled around. I thought that was so earnest of of my home state. And I was like, OK, yeah, we'll, we'll get another round of entrepreneurs. I, I am hopeful. But if Thomas Edison is the closest example we have to Innovator, I think Jersey definitely has to do a lot more work. <laughs> well, and to be fair, New Jersey does have a huge farm industry. It just we, no one gives a junk about it in the tech world for reasons that are beyond me. But it's not just New Jersey that's raising a huh, huge amount of funding for seed index a multi-stage venture fund has been around two decades plus raised 200 million in a dedicated seed fund we had the exclusive this morning on thursday they're going to focus on something that they're calling index origin a 200 million dollar 
dedicated fund that's basically as flexible as capital as you can possibly be. So all the partners at Index are going to be a part of it. They will put seed checks in their European and US, which is sort of where they focus on any geography, any vertical they're going to be able to apply to. And there are some interesting notes. So Index told me, Nina Atejian, who's one of the partners there, said that over the past 18 months, Index has financed 35 seed investments and they're actually going to scale that up. So you know, with this new fund, it's going to get faster oh, no. and it's going to be more flexible. They emphasize that they're actually going to work pretty hard with solo capitalists, rolling funds and others. So they're less ownership concerned because they are multi-stage. That's kind of big, right? Because I feel like a lot of the rolling fund people who have actually avoided creating rolling funds have said that they are doing that because institutional VCs won't work with them. So index actually being explicit is compelling. That just shows you the new landscape for a lot of competitive rounds, right? A lot of founders want those rolling funds and those solo capitalists. And Nina was very clear in making the point that, you know, in many cases, these funds actually have really specific skill sets for early stage founders. Index has a couple of different services. We can run through them. They're going to help with hiring and, and first customers and getting you sort of the right operational support. So they have a couple of programs to help that out for their seed founders. But really, the flexibility here is what drives it. By being multi-stage, maybe they only get 3%, let's say, I'm making up a number, 3 or 5% in the seed round, but they can come in at the A, take 6 or 7% or 10% or 15% or the B or the C or the D. Index actually is at every stage that they just want to be near you. They want to help you and be part of the program. What's interesting to me, though, is that this actually matches a similar strategy at Sequoia. So Sequoia, earlier this year, raised a minutely smaller dedicated seed fund of $195 million, which they announced about two months ago. So, you know, it's interesting to see some of these bigger firms not only raise seed funds and kind of announce they're going to do this explicitly, they're actually raising dedicated vehicles. And most other funds so far have been kind of merging their seed into the A fund and, you know, calling it or dubbing it early stage. And so it's interesting to see two really prominent VC firms create completely dedicated seed funds, presumably with LP overlap, but perhaps not 100%. I would love to see them be flexible on ownership. And it sounds like you said that they are, because I think the future of seed investing, if it really is going to give emerging fund managers a seat at the table, is to be a little less vulture-esque with ownership percentages. And of course, a Sequoia index could be pretty intense because they have the brand and they have that really strong portfolio to show for themselves. I'm sure a lot of founders would still die for a check from them, but it would be really great. I don't know if that's like me being super optimistic to see them not push for the biggest and leading all the rounds. Index, like a lot of firms, are just at the point where they'd rather be involved, yeah, even with a smaller check, knowing that they can get further involved in later checks. You know, they have the dedicated seed funds, so it looks, you know, from a returns perspective, it's going to be a seed return profile. So those later stage rounds, which will be done, you know, in the growth fund or in the early stage fund, those can continue going on. And the firm wanted to double down, but they've always done seed. That's why they're calling it Origin. So they've done Robinhood, Figma, Deliveroo, Wise. They actually have oh, a wow. long list. I didn't include all of them. It was a, I was like, that's an obnoxious list of like great companies you happen to touch. But they have done a really good job and they want to do more of it. And then the other piece here related to the New Jersey fund is you need to really emphasize the diversity aspect of this. You know, diversity oftentimes gets lost in the pipeline as companies fundraise more and more and have to go through more and more of these funding checkpoints. And so for Index in particular, they felt that if you really want to increase the diversity of founders, you have to start from the very beginning. You have to make sure that the top of the pipeline is as full as possible as people disgorge all the way through that pipeline. And so again, you know, on the diversity front, a dedicated seed fund gives them a little bit more opportunity to, to increase the diversity of their founders in their portfolio. Yeah, especially because Index, as you mentioned, like has the capacity to invest across multi-stages and you know it has deep pockets. So that is definitely a benefit to working with these funds. And letting them kind of come in early on is like it gives you a little bit of a safety blanket if you're a good company as you grow bigger. So a bet from index is some kind of insurance. 
But let's talk about funding rounds now. Is that We're going to talk about actual funding rounds. But today we're going to talk about a company called Walnut, which is not related to Peanut, which is a different company, or Cashew, which is another company. <laughs> but this time it's Walnut, which is focusing on healthcare bills. Natasha, tell us a little bit about Walnut. One thing on Walnut's name, I know you hate when we talk about startup names, but I did ask the CEO why they named it Walnut. And he said that similar to Lemonade, which has like this one word <laughs> aesthetic of being like a friendly product, Walnut is trying to illustrate that same kind of vibe. Don't you have to use like a big like clamp thing in order to open up a Walnut? <laughs> we always joke about the names, but really there's a lot of peanut and nut related names. But what, what, what's Walnut working on? Okay, so Walnut is self-described as a, a firm for healthcare payments. They just raised a $3.6 million seed round from firms such as Afore Capital, 248 Ventures, Supernode Ventures. And to me, they're interesting because similar to a firm, they're using this buy now, pay later model for elective healthcare procedures. But unlike a firm, they're not charging the consumer any extra fees or any extra interest. So it's supposed to be a little bit more friendly towards consumers and are trying to make money more on the provider side by helping a little bit of people who probably know a little bit about healthcare, knowing that the take rate and collections rate of elective surgeries is super low. So by paying upfront to providers, letting patients pay Walnut directly is giving them some kind of wiggle room. I uh, have a friend who works in the, I think it's called something like healthcare revenue lifecycle management space. Oh. It's one of those things that as soon as I heard that phrase, I was like, this conversation is now over. I was like, that person is no longer a friend. <laughs> but uh, it's actually a huge space, tens of billions of dollars, as you can imagine. Healthcare is 18, 20% of the economy, huge revenue, huge challenges of people being able to pay. You get these big surprise ER bills. You show up, you pay $60,000, and you're like, WTF, what do you do? Even if you get a payment plan from the hospital, let's say they take that $60,000 bill and turn it into a $2,000 bill, that's still a lot of money for most folks. So I think Walmart is trying to get in there and say, hey, is it possible to spread that over time? Your insurance company won't allow you to do that. Most hospitals won't allow you to do that. But it is a good practice. And we've seen that work for Peloton, which is the firm's largest customer. Again, a large purchase and just being able to itemize it out. I think it's actually amazing that they're focusing on, on doing it industry, though. I mean, that's not a firm's model. That's not the model for most of these companies. Instead, they're sort of taking it a transaction rate on the payment side of the ledger. So theoretically from the clinic or the healthcare provider. And so I, it's nice to see, given the cluster F of the American healthcare system, you know, there's at least some attempt to ameliorate some of the worst effects of the system's billing and revenue practices. Yeah. And I think I kind of butchered the way I was trying to explain how they're able to not take a fee, but also make money. So basically, the CEO was telling me that a provider's collection rate for out-of-pocket expenses, which is what Walnut is trying to help make more flexible with payments, provider's collection rate usually is around 50%. And then Walnut would go to them and say, okay, like we will promise to get you at least 60% of that collection if you give us a slight discount, aka give us part of any payments you get. And Walnut, as a result, gives them the cash upfront for about 60% of any elective procedure that's done. And the provider is then incentivized to work with it. And I think that's important to mention because incentives in healthcare are so confusing and it's really hard to get a provider to say yes. And even Walnut, to be clear, is only working with a handful of private clinics. Once it's working at hospitals, that's when I think the real impact will come for Walnut. Absolutely. And look, you know, anyone who's ever had to go through the American healthcare system knows that every single provider bills separately, including all the tests from LabCorp, all these different things. So if you ever have a medical emergency, you suddenly get dozens of bills. And so to me, the actual long-term power here is if Walnut can actually capture a decent percentage of the market, you actually might centralize more and more of your billing 
brew walnut, right? Walnut could handle all of those different bills simultaneously, itemize them out, minimize your sort of expense or interest. So, I mean, what a, what a massive, because I, I, I think I still owe Columbia four bucks. They email me every <laughs> once in a while and I, I dare them to collect their $4. But let's talk about one final funding round before we close out. We're talking about real which I think it's just literally called Real, so that's R-E-A-L, raised $10 million from Lightspeed, Megan Rapinoe, and others to rethink therapy. So obviously coronavirus has led to a huge profusion of digital therapy services, Calm, Headspace, a bunch of others have done extremely well over the last year as more and more people couldn't go in person to see their therapist. Real is trying to reinvent this through group therapy. So a lot of the other competitors in the space are one-on-one. There's a lot of issues we we can talk about in a second with one-on-one therapy, particularly from the startup's perspective. But Real wants to try to create group therapy context online so that you can create essentially what they call pathways, which allows you to watch them on demand, journal, get back into it, Um, basically creating both synchronous and asynchronous components. Users pay $28 a month, which is pretty competitive, I think, with private practice. And so, you know, 10 million Series A funding led by Lightspeed, really quite interesting. I would do it. I think the idea that therapy isn't something that's sweetly allocated on your calendar for one hour every Thursday between two like other meetings seems like a more realistic way to handle mental health issues. Not saying that that is not a adequate way, but that's my own personal opinion on how I would want to access care. So the idea of it being on demand at any time, even if it's 11 p.m. after getting like a really crappy text message or, or having a fight with someone, I think is like mental health care fast forwarded to like 2021. And what's interesting is, you know, so they, they do call it these pathways, but their top pathways are sexuality, motherhood and intimacy, which I thought was interesting because, you know, we think of a lot of these as like calm or meditation or I, I would call it like workplace stress related therapy kind of components. And real seems to have found kind of an interesting niche focus around a different concept by using groups in these contexts as opposed to one-on-one training it feels a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous or other groups that are designed around different specific problems and, and connecting you with other folks with, with similar challenges who can help you, you know, guide you, give them their, your, their own experiences. It gives you a community and a cohort to you know, solve those problems over the long term. Right. And you know, they've raised about $16 million since launch. And it's making me think a lot about the future of telehealth in general. I think they have an in-person bit coming. But when I talk to people in healthcare about the future of telehealth, they're saying two things. One is that telehealth is trending downwards. People are doing it less now that vaccinations and post-COVID is like a conversation or reality for a lot of people. And then the second thing they say is of the telehealth that will remain, mental health will be the thing that stays, which is interesting because it's not great, but it also might be the only thing that really makes sense for telehealth long term. I'm curious, Danny, I know you have thoughts on that. I've talked to a couple of folks over the last couple of weeks about telehealth, and all I will say is I, I, I'm not convinced that all telehealth is here to stay unless there's radical change in the way that insurance billing works. You know, most medical offices get paid less for telehealth than for in-person appointments. Most insurance plans have it set up that way. It's actually kind of a, a little bit of a legacy from the past. The problem is, from the office's perspective, the provider's time is the same. The office workers all have to, you know, process your appointment, follow up. The PA has to, you know, write your prescription and get it written up by the doctor. Like, all the work is the same. And in some cases, the actual payment for a telehealth appointment can be as much as 50 or 60% less than an in-person visit. And there's no time difference. Like there's really, it's just less money. And so what I've seen with a lot of clinics is they're just getting rid of video. Now that COVID is coming to a close over the next couple of months, they want people to come back because they need those high insurance reimbursement rates. So I think that unless we see radical change from the insurance programs, from Medicare, Medicaid, telehealth is going to have a struggle. It really doesn't make a lot of sense for the providers to offer it. I think post-pandemic incentives are going to be the core of each startup's conversation internally and externally. We'll actually see true colors. 
I think that's the perfect note to end on. Danny, super great to tag team this with you. It's just a you and me. This is great. I think we can fire Alex officially. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if our producers agree with that, but I agree with myself. Alex isn't here to argue with me. So nonetheless, Alex will be back Monday morning for our latest Equity Weekly Update. Also check out, I think we're going to have a tonal EC1 clubhouse Friday afternoon. So if you're still actually subscribed on Clubhouse, you should definitely be there. A writer, JP Mangalinden, and potentially me, if I'm not bored out of my mind by Friday afternoon, will be on. But nonetheless, that's our show. Natasha, thank you so much. Cheers. 